Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. G'day, you're listening to Living the Dream and you're joined just by me, Dave, today and you can catch me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. And today's a bit of a kind of an experiment. I just really wanted to make, kind of to think aloud, I guess, on the question of the Trump presidential announcements about tariff and trade. Uh, I know a great uh, roar goes out from the crowd. Doesn't that sound exciting? But I actually think something's really important in is going on, and I've kind of seen like a dearth of attempts to understand it amongst the Australian left. And I think this, in some ways, has to do with the way that you know the activity of the Trump presidency around tariffs has. Um, broken the mental or cognitive map of the Australian left in the sense that, um, on one hand, this left in Australia wants to oppose the Trump government, fair enough, but on the other hand, it generally has a soft spot for tariffs as an expression of its uh, opposition to what we call free trade. So what happens when you have a figure who's despised that seems to be carrying out a policy which so much of the Australian left agrees with, I think it causes like a mental shutdown. And I kind of wanted to use this opportunity to think about what's going on, how it it kind of expresses some of the dynamics of our moment in the contemporary global order of capital and what we can kind of do about that. So everything's moving very quickly, but the way that I understand it is that there's been two sets of announcements that have been made. The first one is that the Trump presidency is putting a tariff on steel imports, and the second one they're engaging in um, a whole series of investigations that will potentially put billions of dollars on tariffs on a wide range of Chinese imports. And they justify this with an argument that says something about um, China not respecting US um, intellectual property. And I think this really makes us kind of ask some difficult questions about what the nature of the social order actually is, uh, the nature of the global order actually is, how trade works and what the hell is going on and I think kind of really prompts us to move beyond the cognitive map of the standard social democratic left. Though even, you know, caveat, I'm starting to think that maybe the term social democratic is increasingly or has always been inappropriate in the Australian context and we should rather refer to laborism and the laborist left. And this is partly because I think um, Australia, the Australian Labor Party is not, has never actually really been a social democratic party in the sense that it's never had a real vista of complete transformation. It's always been something far more unpleasant. So anyway... Okay, so, you know, we have these two announcements of an increasing, uh, of imposing tariffs, particularly aimed against China. I think we should go, all right, yes, there's a level of 
pretty severe disunity in the US state. So that's interesting in itself that the Trump presidency doesn't really seem to be um, being able to kind of really represent a hegemonic block in the US state. Rather, it's a faction that's in competition and the personnel keep on kind of moving and shifting. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had a discussion on Twitter where someone said, oh, hang on, maybe you know, don't get too excited about this. Um, Bush, after all, in the early 2000s, um, brought in steel tariffs. And I had ne- either had never known this or had completely forgotten about it. So I went off and did a little research, and it is true that the US government originally um, planned to bring in uh, and did bring in some tariffs on steel imports in the early 2000s that were meant to only go for a certain number of years. And it's, it's interesting, there was an interview with a Brazilian newspaper where one of the people in the Bush administration basically said, well, the reason we're doing this is to kind of like soften the blow of the imposition of free trade in the US in a way to solidify support for free trade. And eventually these um, tariffs were taken to the World Trade Organization and due to the action in the World Trade Organization, the US had to withdraw them. Something else that's really interesting to think about. Um, also, while this has been happening, there was a meme shared by the CFMEU on their Facebook page, and I'll link to it, which um, was a meme which would said something along the lines of a future shortened government, there would be like more cops on the borders to stop imports coming in and to save Australian jobs. So here we have probably one of the few actually effective unions left in Australia, largely popular with its members, militant, also manifesting a debate uh, a demand for protectionism. So that's really interesting. So this, I think, reflects um, that opposition to free trade is a core pillar of the left in many ways, and it works on a series of logics that often seems either implicitly or explicitly to say that... So the defence of workers necessitates a defence of work, and therefore that means the defence of specific firms. Um, this... Also, I guess, is because the experience of free trade since the 1970s saw the destruction of the industrialised, unionised Fordist production um, and the associate forms of life. You know, that's what um, Bruce Springsteen songs are about. You know, a real profound destruction of a whole series of industries and the communities around them. And also with them, the kind of antagonistic patterns of struggle that existed in those communities. So this has become kind of muddled up in the cognitive mapping of the Australian left about like a defensive struggle being a defensive work, defensive work and being, you know, a defense of certain firms and this therefore protectionism as part of a, a left platform. It's really interesting at this point to think about that um, both Marx and Engels, um, you know, if they're important to you, they're important to me, they might not be important to you, made really radical defenses of free trade. Um, Marx's lecture in, I think it's the late 1840s, maybe early 1850s, um, where he defended free trade basically goes, makes two moves. On one hand, he goes, okay, like this argument that free trade is freedom is bullshit. You know, what we're really talking about is just freedom for uh, capital to move. But the opposition to free trade is reactionary. It's attempting to defend older, limited forms of production. And we should support free trade because It'll support the continual development of capital, which means the continual development of the contradictions of capital and thus our ability to overthrow it. There's a, there's a kind of really, uh, I guess, accelerationist or radical argument in there that, you know, what 
we are about is not defending previous forms of social life, but actually seeing that is what is in capitalism is the capacity for the creation of a radical future. Not an argument that you actually hear that much even about contemporary Marxists today. Now, of course, the debate between about free trade versus um, protectionism or mercantilism, and I'm sure some of uh, the intellectual historians out there will suddenly be having a conniption that I'm saying that protectionism and mercantilism are the same things, but okay. Um, It's a really old debate. You know, in fact, arguably it's one of the opening debates in political economy or economics was between... um, proponents of free trade against what at the time was a mercantilist establishment. So what's at stake in this um, argument? So generally proponents of um, some form of protectionism argues that if you need to develop an economy, um, it's threatened by competition from cheaper imports. Therefore, you need some kind of protection um, that limits the the entry or the cheap price, either the volume of imports from outside or the it artificially pushes up the costs of imports so you can allow industries to develop within your own nation. Why do you want to do this? There's often a particular understanding of the nation state saying that this needs to be done for strategic national reasons. For the mercantilists in particular, so I think this is roughly the seven so the 18th century, someone you know, tweet at me and tell me that I'm wrong. And look, I've never read um, any of the mercantilists myself. All my knowledge really comes from I.I. Um, I. Rubin's excellent History of political, econo- political Economy or History of Economic Thought, one of the two. I'll link to it in the show notes. And also, you know, Adam Smith arguing against mercantilists. That they very much had an idea that what was important was the development of the military to develop a military, you needed gold. Therefore, you had to subordinate trade policy to develop um, funds for the military. You can also often see that there's a kind of strategic indus- argument that is used by protectionists. They say that certain industries somehow have a greater worth than just profit-making. So you know, something like making steel is necessary or having access to oil, something along those lines. And there's also a really interesting argument in the mercantilist literature in particular that the question of national stability and the balance of conflicts between classes was really important. The trade policy had to be um, subordinate in a way um, that meant that you didn't kind of either impoverish the poor or actually allow wages to rise too much, but you had to do something to maintain um, the overall social order. Super interesting, right? So the critique or the problems of protectionism is often argued that at some point, because what you're doing is putting a cost on inputs, that actually as you are developing um your your technology it means you actually retard that development because you're not getting cheap input inputs anymore you um, you're not having those cheap inputs that are coming in so you can't develop as effectively or you're artificially pushing up other costs and so this is as I understand it what the corn laws debate in the early 1800s was about that by um, restricting the amount of corn that could be imported from into the UK what you were doing is pushing up the cost cost of corn and therefore you're either impoverishing workers or artificially pushing up wages and at some point maybe this leads to a um, a kind of reciprocal restriction on your exports, that if you've protected your industry and you've developed it to a certain level, at one point you're going to want to export out. You're going to be looking for um, larger sources of demand around the globe. So the counter-argument, you know, from 
proponents of free trade is arguably that protectionism distorts the market. Um, Smith in particular, and he's super interesting, right, argued that the size of the market increases specialisation and specialisation increases productivity and an increase in productivity increases wealth. Therefore, if you artificially limited the market, you would limit specialisation and you would limit wealth. Now, there's a major error in Smith that he see understands uh, accumulation as being driven by wealth when, of course, accumulation in a, actually in the capitalist mode of production is driven by the desire to accumulate more money to become capital, right? So it's different there. The other argument is that, of course, that uh, free trade ensures the cheapest cost. Um, this allows uh, people, because they can get in you know, whatever commodity from all around the world, that they will buy the one that is the best and the cheapest. In the Australian context, the Australian New Right used to argue that this, therefore, compelled efficiency. So this is very much a Hayekian view. Uh, the market is actually a force of bene beneficent compulsion. That there are, They argue that Australian industry was sluggish because it was protected. If you pulled down tariffs and Australian industry had to compete, then it would be compelled to become um, efficient. And tied with this is often a quite liberal, idealistic understanding of what the world is like. So actually, I should jump back a bit. For the mercantilists, there's an idea that the relationship between nation-states is a hostile one, that trade is a zero-sum game, that you can kind of, you should only, you know, that each state is competing and carving out its share. For defenders of free trade, there's often an assumption here of the way that free trade fits into... Um, I guess, like a liberal world order where it assumes that trade is always mutually beneficial and that the increased volume of trade that happens uh, increasingly makes a peaceful world. So you often hear the argument that um, no two nations that both have Coca-Cola have ever gone to war with each other. I think that's actually bullshit. I'm not entirely sure. Someone get at me. I have... Do... I, maybe I've made this joke before, I can't remember, but um, I, there is something out there about um, the, in the lead-up to World War II, um, the Nazis in Nazi Germany did have Coke, but they couldn't get the um, components for it anymore, so they made a new drink, which was Fantastisch or Fanta. Um, so there's some joke in there that World War II proves that Coke is better than Fanta. But, but so that could be bullshit. But the, the, the liberal argument is that trade leads to increasingly peaceful worlds. So that's a theoretical argument that happens in the kind of mainstream um, literature. How do we kind of understand this, I guess, historically? So I guess there has been, speaking very generally again, um, that there has kind of been a historical pattern since the development of capitalism to this. So I guess to begin with, protectionism is often used by states um, as they start to enter the capitalist world economy to defend and protect their industries, but at some point um, this deforms their development and they need to cast it aside. So even the greatest proponents of um, free trade, so the United Kingdom and then the US, went through periods of protectionism until they had a position of kind of global supremacy. So global supremacy both in the level of the development of the efficiency of their forms of production but also their place 
in the world order, and then they argued for free trade. In the second half of the 20th century, we've seen two different models, so the Asian development state and import substitutionism, which is associated um, more and more, which was associated more with South America. And the Asian development state was when the state, such as South Korea or um, um, Japan, um, had ways of really kind of protecting and developing and long-term nurturing industries that were aimed to export outwards. Um, and the import substitutionist model is more classically an attempt to protect uh, countries like Brazil and others from imports. And the literature generally says that the Asian development state was more successful than import substitutionism, but apparently import substitution is, is better than we often hear arguments about. So we saw this, and I think arguably you could argue that maybe China is still a model of the Asian development state, where you have a close relationship between state, finance, protection of industries aimed for some kind of you know, export-orientated goal. I guess what is so new, interesting then about Trump's manoeuvre is that we are now talking about a situation where a state that is at the pinnacle of the world order, however you theorise that world order, and I'm pretty solidly in the uh, Hart and Negri empire camp, so you have the US, is imposing tariffs and trade tariffs on trade that's i think as i understand it is a unique situation rather than tariffs being used as a way to protect a country as it's developing to be cast off at some moment of development rather we have the state at the top of the pyramid who is using this um, to defend itself against those lower on the pyramid arguably so how do we understand this like, for me, I think this really throws up a whole set of knotty problems. Um, first is that I think the capitalist mode of production is always premised on and tends towards a world market. Like, when it begins to emerge, so when's that, 15, 1600s, it does so in the colonial encounter between northwestern Europe the Americas and Africa, and has always tended towards a world market. Yet as capitalism has developed, the basic political unit of the world order is the nation-state. It's a really interesting and troubling contradiction. So these states have their own interests, I think, which are simultaneously overdetermined by the dynamics of the capitalist mode of production. The state is constituted by the totality is constituted within the totality of capitalist social relations and the broader dynamics of capital accumulation compel them to behave in certain ways. These states also exist in an unequal relationship with each other. So originally, I think we can typify this as colonial, then imperialist, and now imperial. And they have this kind of job of facilitating and managing capital accumulation within their territory, and sometimes broader, ensuring the social order and recuperating or oppressing social struggles. And they exist... Um, within conflicts and rivalries with each other. And these dynamics always look different in a contingent historical moment. Um, Post-World War II, I guess we could say we originally had the development of the Bretton Woods system. So you have a hostile Cold War division of the globe. Um, but those, I think, outside of the real existing socialist bloc were built around this Bretton Woods system. And so the Bretton Woods system 
um, had three core institutions to it, what became the World Trade Organization, what became the IMF. Oh, no, sorry, that's wrong. What became the World Bank, what became the IMF, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade that was only much later to become um, the, the World Trade Organization. It was built around the par value system where uh, the US dollar was set to being worth a certain amount of gold, then all other currencies were set to be worth a certain amount of the US dollar, and this could um, this was fixed but could be changed with an element of negotiation. At the centre of the global economy, you had the United States, which was both exporting capital and commodities. So, you know, it comes out of the Second World War, you have this huge dynamic economy in the US and fucking Europe's just rubble. So there's this process of both capital pouring out to invest across the world in Japan as well, South Korea, but simultaneously as this capital is going out, it's buying commodities that are produced in the US as this way of driving um, the global economy. There is a sharp um, division between what we could call core and periphery as a kind of division of labour across the the globe. So you saw high-value industrial production largely be centred in the West and a kind of subordinate primary production being produced in the the time what was called the the third world. Um, And and that's a term that a lot of people kind of like, you know, their backs prick up when they hear the term third world, but many of these nations and struggles for national liberation themselves use that term in that historical um, moment. And, of course, then you had like an imperial world order with the US military at the centre holding together that unequal core periphery division. The social order, I think, was maintained by what the Midnight Notes Collective call a number of deals, and the deal in the North was a social democratic deal where essentially um, for social peace and constant increases in productivity um, given by the working class, you would have a generally rising standard of living um, guaranteed by forms of um, state intervention in the, in the economy, uh, so rising wages social, and the social wage. And in fact, you know, you even saw, I think, um, in the US car industry, if I've got this right, there was an agreement made between the car manufacturers and the United Auto, Auto Workers called the Treaty of Detroit, and it set um, car making, set car working wages were tied to productivity growth in the economy as a whole. Again, tweet at me if I'm wrong about that. So this was the kind of deal there. The Midnight Notes Collective also argued that in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union, socialism was a similar form of deal and that there was national liberation deals in in the global south and the third world too. So this um, global order really explodes in what we might call the red decade of the 60s and 70s. So this is the whole wave of revolts. So this is uh, strikes and wildcat strikes, the emergence of feminism, protests against the Vietnam War, national liberation struggles across the globes themselves, new social movements, May 68, the long autumn in Italy, wildcat strikes. That, that whole period of rebellion throws the counterculture, throws the social order that came out of the Second World War across the globe into crisis. But it does not, and this is a really interesting question, it does not um, develop the capacity to develop a viable replacement to capital. And so by the 70s, you have a counterattack, which people often theorise as neoliberalism. Not a term I love, but that's what they use. And particularly what's interesting for this is that that counterattack involved a profound 
geographical revolution in this global division of labour under the name free trade. And so what we saw in the global north was deindustrialization. So a shift of industry onto the third world, the formation of global production chains, so a single commodity being produced out of components that were made um, across the world with just-in-time production, a structure of free trade which was eventually held together by bodies like the World Trade Organization and also um, sets of agreements, and a rising ideology of free trade and liberal freedom that kind of, you know, kind of constructed around this. In the North, I would argue a new de- deal developed. Uh, again, people might use the term new, li- new liberalism. So this was increasing investment in services that are on high-tech industries, the expansion of finance and real estate. And as the social wage was increasingly um, moved away, uh, the working class had increased access to debt and credit and also state... Le- like. This is, people often think about Keynesianism as the period, you know, the Keynesian period at the end of the Second World War as being the period of increased kind of um, investment uh, investment driven by debt, but it's actually under Reagan that we see this kind of constant spike, and it goes up, it drops a little bit under Clinton, but kind of continues of state level, of state debt to keep um, everything going. So this was the new formation that kind of came out of that, and then again, a whole new wave of struggles, the alter-globalisation movement, opposition around precarious movements, precarious um, opposition around being precarious workers, the rise of unions in the global south, worker militancy in China, the left or pink tide in South America, leading up to 2007-8, you had the crisis of this social order. And since 2007 to 2008, we are... in what EndNotes calls a holding pattern, where the combined activities of states has been able to, I guess, um, minimise... Well, how, do, how do we put it? So states using a certain amount originally of austerity, then um, using um, unorthodox monetary policy to spur financial speculation, debt-led investment in China has kind of prevented... Th- stopped the crisis from really pulling apart the system and has kept it in a holding pattern like a plane moving in increasingly decentric circles. And that's kind of where we're at at the moment. But new pathologies have bubbled up in that period. So since the crisis wasn't allowed to hit, I guess there wasn't that kind of flushing through of the system and then the relaunching of accumulation. What And what we did see are these huge bubbles of debt, these huge infusions of cash, and there's a concern that these now in themselves represent a challenge to the global order. So I think Trump's strategy at this moment, therefore, needs to be understood as a element of the US state attempting to respond to this problem, particularly because one of the flow-on effects of the crisis has been the continual dissolution of the political solidity of lots of social orders, including in the global north, right? Um, Trump himself is a product of that. This could also move in radical directions too. There's this open and contested moment. So we have this faction of the state within the United States, at the pinnacle of the global order, that is attempting a strategy where the US, I guess, is kind of abdicating its previous role since the end of the Second World War as the force that in, 
ensures capital accumulation on a global level, but is saying what is going on in US borders is the most important thing. Super interesting. Um, I don't know if it works. So um, arguably, like what's the kind of danger in this? I guess the danger is that this starts a, a trade war where uh, the US and China keep on putting tariffs and restrictions on each other's trade. This kind of further retards capital accumulation. And in a situation where we have these huge speculative and debt bubbles, um, can hastens the onset of the next um, global crisis. I think the other concern is that trade wars are precursors to shooting wars, that at some point the antagonism against different capitalist states hits a, a sharper point. Um, I think they're, <laughs> yeah, I guess they're the concerns. Um, I think it needs us to think seriously about I think it also shows us that the demand for protectionism is not a radical demand um, and that the idea that what we need to defend certain firms to defend certain industries is in fact the demand of certain capitalist states in certain historical moments and rather what we need to be articulating is our own kind of collective autonomy out of capital. So that's about... Um, a different path? What can we struggle for in the here and now that increases our standards of living opposed to wage labour and to work and also begins to create the collective forms that point us in another direction? But I guess my aim here is at least to get us thinking and discussing like really what's going on here? How is the global order of capital shifting or changing what's driven these Trump changes and what does it mean for us? And in particular, if we're looking at increased conflict between capitalist states, how do we build an opposition to potentially looming more? chicken man over in Philly last night and it blew up his house too down on the boardwalk they're ready for a fight we're gonna see what them ragged boys can do now there's trouble busting in from out of state and the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on a promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on By the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact Maybe everything that dies someday Come back, put your makeup on And fix your hair, look pretty Meet me tonight in Atlantic City But 
I took a job and I put my money in wait Put a goddamn kind of debt that no honest man can pay So I drew out what I had from the Central Trust And I bought us two tickets on the Coast City bus Everything dies, baby, that's a fact Every everything that dies, someday come back Put your makeup Go, go. 